Hey, welcome to the Low Key Podcast. We are Tim Malloy, Keith Denny, and Aaron Lanton. And for this, our 101st episode, we are talking about a documentary that I loved, but we didn't all love, Summer of Soul, the story of the Harlem Cultural Festival, also known as Black Woodstock. We'll get into why it was called that. Uh, it's the directorial debut from Questlove, who you know as the drummer of The Roots. And it is about a series of concerts that were held in Harlem in the summer of 1969 that included just a who's who of ridiculously great musicians, Nina Simone, B.B. King, Sly and the Family Stone, Fifth Dimension, Gladys Knight of the Pips, Stevie Wonder, Mahalia Jackson, and many, many more. Um, I said already that I really, really appreciated this documentary, really just kind of couldn't stop watching it. I planned to watch like 20 minutes of it and pick it up later. And then I just got completely sucked in. Um, why don't we start with Aaron? What did you think of it? Man, uh, <laughs> it's funny. Cause like, you know, normally we kind of come in I have some sense of like what I'm gonna say, and, you know, what points I want to make. There's just like too much to, to cover in my head. Um, you know, I, I got a couple of favorite moments I can think of, like, um, and, and I didn't realize Questlove actually directed this. Um, the, the editing, you know, considering how old this footage is, like, I don't know how long this probably took to actually go through. So 52 years ago, this this takes place, this um, this festival. And there's so many ways that you could approach this, but I thought there was some really clever things they did um, or, or that Questlove chose to do with his editing team, such as when Stevie Wonder, so they start with Stevie, you know, everybody loves some Stevie, so you start with him. Hmm. Later on, you're in the film and they show him playing. And I think something that's really crazy for people who've never seen Stevie Wonder play, and even those who have, is the amount of genius he has at just multiple instruments but then there's that moment where he's at the piano and you know you're seeing his feet at the same time you're seeing him play with his hands and it just doesn't even look like any other human being um who's mm -hmm. ever been birthed could do that it, it just looks insane I mean, he can't even see it is bonkers and, and the way he plays is unlike anything that you know, I've seen on at least video footage. It's really fascinating seeing all those people um, out in the crowd, um, just how they were vibing with everything, um, the different sorts of talent and the looks and the fashion and, and bringing in their context what's happening in 1969. I mean, you know, everybody always talks about Woodstock is, you know, um, you mentioned it's called, called Black Woodstock. Um, we'll get into the, the whys of that later, but um there's so much going on and there's so much that that music meant for people at that time and it's really interesting looking at how many things i mean they could you got the very different people completely different era and the same exact stuff about the you know um importance of this moment and the magnitude and and the sort of uh stressors we have economic racial and otherwise like they're identical like it's kind of wild um you know how you could literally just copy and paste some of the stuff and it you know the same thing applies even with all the additional technologies and all of that like we still have similar divides and we tell ourselves we made so much progress and it's not that that's not true but you know what's bubbling underneath underneath the surface is still still there so you know there's a lot to take from it you know i can talk more about it in, in some depth later but um you know I, I thought it was well put together and um just 
you know, really, it's somebody who really appreciates music, appreciates culture, seeing all these different people at that time, uh, it was just really fascinating. And Keith, we were talking before how you didn't have the strongest opinions about it. No, I think, um, I don't know, it might just be a personal bias. It was one of those films where, um, for me, it's like I, I feel like I wanted to like it more than I did. And um, I, I just wasn't feeling it. And it I think part of it, for me, with documentaries in general, I'm, I'm more into like the overall story. And I feel like a lot of this, and the, and the music is great, it's amazing, but I feel like there were moments where we stayed on the music a little too long for me. You know, and and it took away from like, I, I guess it. it so was you feel too, like it took away from narrative? Is that what it is? It took away from the narrative, and mm -hmm. I feel like the choice of having that music was to immerse you more into the experience as a viewer. Um, but me personally, I'm just not into that. Like, I'm, I'm even though I don't really like crowds, I I think I would I enjoy concerts more if I'm actually at a concert over like watching people enjoy a concert and there's certain elements like just seeing all you know seeing all those people together seeing them because even now I, I can't think of like what would the black version of that be today you know like, yeah, let's who, let's uh, come back to that question I, I think that's a good question but that I, I definitely think that's a conversation we should have I think it'd be interesting to talk right. about I, and um it kind of reminded me of um when Dave Chappelle had that block party movie a little bit that was um you know that it was those type of acts and the the who's who within the um as far as like black artists at that time mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and from that you know like like the music all of that you know it was good it was just some about the narrative that fell short to me that made it hard for me to watch this for like two hours you know something too though and it's it's occurring to me now hearing you say that Tim and I both lived in New York and been in Harlem I think that too probably plays a part in, um, you know, our enjoyment of it. I think so too. Also, no offense to people from New York or people that love New York. <laughs> I never been there personally, but I'm I'm kind of sick of New York. Like, <laughs> I know that's a fucked up thing to say, but it's like I'm so. Why, why is it a fucked up thing to say? I mean, like I because I never been there. You know, I've only dated women from New York. I was sick of their ass. But then it's, it's what it is. It's like every it's like every movie, just about every TV show, just about takes place in either New York or or LA. Because you know and they just, can't get the South no love, right? Or, and I'm just kind of tired of those stories. Like I was cool. I was I was. It was nice to see like BB King and Mahalia Jackson and all them people there. But it was just like uh, I'm just okay. Brooklyn, we know, we get it. Harlem, we get it. You know. And I sometimes I'm just tired of those stories. And then also after seeing like um, what was it in the heights? My yeah. girlfriend just had to watch it so bad. And I mean it's a good film, but like I told her, I don't know what it is. I'm just tired of New York. Which one is in the heights? I can't even remember now. It's a it's a musical. It's um by oh that Lynn Manuel. Yeah, yeah, Lynn Manuel Miranda. I mean, look, man, everybody know about him. And look, I ain't gonna lie. I'm not gonna lie. I gotta be honest. I saw him in this doc and I kind of rolled my eyes. Not cause. Man, see you. You want see he won in New York. See, this is another New York thing. Hamilton 
was impossible to get away from. Holy smokes. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's funny. I, I was on the the being critical of Hamilton train when it first came out because I had heard the um, the actual play. I wasn't able to, to see it in person, but, um, you know, whatever. I had my, my quibbles with it. Now people have you watched it on Disney Plus yet? No, I haven't watched it on Disney. I plan to at some point. I haven't gotten it's to it. It's actually pretty good. Well, he's um, I, this ain't a this ain't a Hamilton thing. What we'll, if if we have like a side episode one day? We'll talk about Hamilton and what you know what my quibbles were with it. Um, but that man was like in everything for like forever. So I, I just reflexively roll my eyes. But then I always <laughs> end up kind of you know catching myself because he is somebody who really does have a true appreciation of culture, especially you know from people from Puerto Rico. And, you know, making sure that people kind of understand the history of like how this like kind of Afro-Caribbean in Ireland um, cultures all kind of come together, specifically in New York City. Like that's a very particular thing right. in, in upper Manhattan. Um, and, and when you're around Dominicans and, and Haitians and Jamaicans and Puerto Rican, like, I mean, it's a very particular kind of culture, you know, like in I mean, it they are just a special, you know, you know, when you get all those people together, like I said, it's a special thing. The food, the culture, the, the, you know, just the way they be talking, like all of it. Like it's, it's a whole thing. Um, mm-hmm. Now, it, it's really crazy though, because, you know, for me, you know, you talk about how like this for you felt like really New York City centric. I mean, for me, this, I didn't really get that vibe. I mean, for me, a lot of this is thinking through, and I mean, I think the documentary talked about this a little bit, like where these people came from. Like, you know, you got the, the people who do the gospel who are from all these different areas. You got the people, because, you right. know, like Hayla Jackson's from Chicago. You got these other groups from, you know, uh, you know, Oakland and, and surrounding areas there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and other, other people coming from the South, bringing their version of gospel, um, contemporary gospel to the people trying to, because they talk about like, you know, now, nowadays they even say now, like, you know, all the youth is like becoming atheists and, da, 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 and like, they were saying the same thing in 1969. Man, you know, that was, now that was interesting. Like the, what he was saying about like a lot of young people getting away from God and stuff and getting away from the church. But then he was talking about, um, their, um, what was the gospel song they were singing? It's not coming to me right now. I, I know, I know what it is in my head now. Yeah, but but, to me. but it but but when you when you think about it, because me and Randall was talking about it, it got like a more of a soul type feel to it. One hundred percent. And then so now you look at gospel music now. Like I just recently in life started listening to gospel music. A lot of it sounds like R and B and soul. Yeah. And then you also got hip hop, um, gospel too. And I and I and it was like okay, I get it because they're trying to you know reach the young people, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but then also, you know, you do it in a respectful way because just like um, Kanye West and uh, what is it? What, what are those people called? Um, damn. Uh, Sunday service. Sunday service. Yeah. They add a lot of, uh, you know, R&B and hip hop mixed in with gospel and stuff. Yeah. Before and, Kanye went a little, you know, whatever turn he took, not sure, you know, exactly how it happened, but I, I really uh-huh. did think he did an impactful um version of talking about god even like when he right, did right. jesus walks that was an incredible album well, yeah. an incredible song i really thought so like it, it's still really good yeah yeah and um i think i think what it, what i noticed even with even with them for example like if you look at certain videos of people putting stuff on like 
on like um YouTube is people that's like agnostic or atheist that's that is like just listening to that kind of at least um it it um what's the word I'm looking for? It inspired them in some type of way. Now rather it made them become Christians or not is a whole different thing in itself. But it's just it just shows the power of music, you know. Yeah, and they and remember as you as you're talking about the power of music, I mean at one point and it sounds hyperbolic, but like this this is a thing that, that that's been true then and other times too. That like part of why they wanted to do this is that they were concerned they'd have another riot similar to they had the year before in the summer, you know, mm-hmm. um, after King was killed. So, um, you know, it, it it was a a lot of the people, at least in the footage we saw, they spoke not just simply about you know coming together and having this this art to share but you know see, seeing this is a moment of black liberation even stevie wonder said i don't give an f for i mean an f for he said i don't give a four-letter word the closest i've heard to stevie wonder cousin <laughs> you know what i mean and uh it's it's one of those things where like they came there with a purpose not just simply to share their art i mean he was 19 19 he had made like a lot of the music that we know is like the super duper cold stuff and it still was on point. And I didn't know that man could play the drums like that when he got Stevie on the Wonder drums, plays like like, like eight nine instruments. It's that dude's ridiculous. Yeah, how good Stevie Wonder is. It's we. I listened to Intervision driving around like about two weeks ago, and it was just like, what in the fuck is this? This I is still cool. listen to Song of the Key of Life like at least every other month. The whole thing back back. You know, have front y'all back. have y'all ever heard that song? It was a song he sang at Michael Jackson's funeral. Um, they they won't go where I go. Yeah, man, that song it'll put you in tears. I don't care if you you could be a stone cold thug. Man, the, the <laughs> one of the coldest songs he wrote was um oh my god I, I'm 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 not sure I'm um part time love using the right time no well, <laughs> <laughs> that's fun. No, I was thinking of uh um uh I'll be loving you. Yeah, I love that John too. That that man said I'll be loving you to eight times eight times eight is four. He man, he just came with so many cold bars, like just back to back to back. I mean, forget Wayne, forget Jay, forget before them. The the maestro was Stevie. Just put bars, 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 back to back to back. But then to even see people like, you know, Max Roach, I said they like they they just were bringing out the the hitters, you know, like over and over. Gladys Knight, Nina Simone, like, and then they even had. You know, where I really my jaw dropped, and I just did not see this coming. They had different acts who were like uh, stand up acts come up. Yeah. Like when I saw, um, oh my God, not how names escaped oh. me. Because um, I mean, she is like a staple, a staple of like early, early, early stand up for people. And I, that was her name. Moms. Yes. Yeah. Dude, I saw her and my jaw dropped. Who that? Mom's Mabley. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I I, just, I couldn't believe what I was saying. I like they were able to bring acts. Like if you could just imagine somebody, they got them there, you know. Except Jimmy, Jimmy Hendrix, and uh, Tim. Actually, you had a, a story you're putting up a movie maker about that. Could you just kind of like give everybody like a quick rundown of of why Jimmy Hendrix wasn't present? Yeah, I think it kind of goes to the heart of what this festival was supposed to be, and the thing you said about how Questlove told the New York Times that 
at its heart, this the reason the city supported this festival so much is because they really did think that it was going to keep the peace and it was going to protect property. And one reason that Jimi Hendrix didn't play, the reason Jimi Hendrix didn't play, he wanted to play. He asked if he could play and he was turned away for being too radical. Um, so that quote is open to interpretation. What does too radical mean? Is it too musically radical? Uh, yeah. Somehow politically radical. And I kind of tried to puzzle it out in this story because the most radical thing that we see in this documentary is the Nina Simone reading the poem by one of the last, the last poets um, where she asks, are you willing to kill? Um, uh. Jimi Hendrix never said anything that could be, I mean, that could be construed as radical. It could be construed as just an artistic statement, but I don't think Jimi Hendrix was ever as nakedly um, provocative as that. Some I think people, may, maybe it's a performance from a performance standpoint. Yeah, well, well, he was the type of person that burned his guitar and stuff, right? Well, Jimmy, Jimmy yeah. was was certainly a very, he, he, you know, look at Woodstock that year. That's where he performs. Yeah. He yeah. First off, Jimi Hendrix was was showing his whole ass. I mean, as far as like his ability playing with his teeth, playing the Star Spangled Banner, you know. But, that, but like Sly and the Family Stone are like pretty like out there and dramatic and stuff they're like provocative performers and i don't think anybody's like that's Mm. too wild we can't do it well he was doing war songs though too at the time the thing about hendrix and i tried to get into this too being like a lifelong Jimi hendrix fan i i always assumed this guy is like anti-vietnam war he's anti he's probably like very left but he's also a veteran of the 101st airborne pretty recently before he becomes like Jimi Hendrix because he mm-hmm. dies in 27. And then I think he support as trite as the sounds, I think he supports the troops and he supports these guys who are over there who don't necessarily want to be there. Yeah. And is thinking of them, but I don't know if he ever takes a strong like pro or anti-war position. And the idea from taking a pro-war position sounds crazy, but I don't think he ever like came out and said i'm ag- i don't know if he ever came out and said explicitly i'm against the vietnam war because when dick, get, dick cavett asked him you know what was up with that performance of the star spangled banner he says you know i had to sing it in school i just played it it's just a song like i just performed it and he said you kind of did it in a unorthodox way and hendrix says no i don't think it's unorthodox at all i thought it was beautiful so i think mm-hmm. you can look at his version of the star spangled banner is like a celeb i it's one of the greatest things i've ever heard you can look at it as a criticism of the United States, or you can look at it as like a celebration of the freedom of a country that lets him make a piece of art like that. But yeah, I, I think it's more the latter. And and I would right. think he would consider himself somebody who loved his country, flaws and all. Mm-hmm. And, and not, not that he accepted those flaws for what they were, but that, you know, he's not afraid to acknowledge that those flaws exist. But, you know, at the same time, uh, embrace, you know, uh, what what Obama used to say, like, you know, the asp- what it's like aspiration, like, what you know, what we can become. Like, I forget exactly how you would always put this stuff. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, you know, what America aspires to be, like these promises that we choose to, to you know, uphold or, or say that we uphold, like, you know, constantly trying to reach that. I feel like that was more what he was going for, you I- know, and. And, but you know what was really cool too, though, was seeing, uh, and I knew about what time period this was. So seeing David Ruffin up there, yeah, oh, yeah, that was pretty. Was really <laughs> funny. Yeah, 
Because I'm mm, like, I don't that. see the temptations up there. <laughs> see, <Man. laughs> well, that made me think about uh, what the movie. Ain't nobody came to see you, Otis. <laughs> Y'all ain't shit without David Ruffin. <laughs> Man, that's my favorite part of the movie. <laughs> we we gonna call it David Ruffin and the Temptations. Man, hey, that movie's so good. I don't know if Tim's ever seen it, but oh my god, what a what a you know, movie! You know that qualifies as a black movie. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's really a black, black, a black movie. <laughs> it's movie definitely fantastic. Let me yeah, ask I mean, people: What movie is this? What's the name of it? Uh, <laughs> it's called The Temptations. Is it literally, is it literally just called The Temptations? Yeah, well, yeah, it was just oh, uh, The Temptations. Um, I remember seeing it on TV like a multi-part series. But I think it's just like a straight movie though. Like it's no, it was like a mini series. Okay, it was just a mini series. Okay, it like, was like it, it had to been like four to five hours long. Dude, that's oh so good. You like Tim? If you if you like hearing like seeing some lowdown, we gonna tell all the dirt stuff. Watch that. That is some is good acting. It's oh, still wow. entertaining, like to this day. Like you get to see all the dirt. Well, when I mean, said, ain't nobody came to see you, Otis. That thing <laughs> was talking reckless. He ain't give a shit. It was so funny. I, oh my god! I still cry when Blue die. Yeah, hey, I don't give everything away. Like I mean, people, people ain't even seen it. Motherfuckers should know he did. Everybody who, who <laughs> listens to this is not black. Yeah. They don't know. Oh, okay. My <laughs> That's the thing about some things at this doc. It's like, can you talk about it? Is it a spoiler? Because it happened 50 years ago. That's what I'm saying. Also, Tupac is dead too, y'all. So. <laughs> man, man, Tupac anyway. Um, hey, you know somebody I actually didn't for real know about was John Lindsay, by the way. The, the mayor of New York at the time. Yeah, I didn't want to. <laughs> I thought about doing like a breakout on what's up with this guy, but I didn't want to be. I didn't want to white center it. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah, white savior. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think but, you'd be doing. I mean, for the context of what we're talking about, I, I think it's fair to bring it up. Like, how the hell did this even happen? Where you have like six weeks of, of musical acts of, of this level, and and you know, sixty nine, and everybody ain't freaking out. So I think it's fair to at least talk about the mayor and then this white guy who happened to unite as they put it the blacks the puerto ricans and some of the jews i thought that was a very <laughs> choice phrasing some of the oh. jews i also like an era where politicians get points for he didn't seem uncomfortable uh look <laughs> tim tim let's be real that's still how it's put today i think that's like how biden got in like, yeah it is <laughs> He, he, in, until when they got to the primaries where the black people lived, suddenly Joe Biden was doing just fine. He, he went from being at the bottom of the race to winning the primary. So the fact that he will touch a black person's hand is going real far with a lot of people. <laughs> Still in 50 some years later. Wow. Joe Biden was at the, <laughs> was at the cultural festival. But look, here's the thing. Stokely Carmichael's in this. And I don't know if you remember how, you know, the stuff, you know, even last year that, that he said about Carmichael that people were not happy about. I don't remember that at all. We had to get into it here. But like, look, Biden still got some some stuff from in, you know, back in the day that he said that ain't really rocking with people too, too much today. <laughs> He said he said a lot over fifty odd years. No, but I'm saying he said something last year about about Stokely Carmichael that didn't go over very well. He probably got away with that because half of the people who would have been offended were like, "Who?" He got away with it because it was like the other option is well, not yeah. an option. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Like corn pop would have been a much bigger deal in another in another year. <laughs> corn pop. Look, look, long story short, John Lindsay just this handsome, tall, you know, white guy who's not uncomfortable around black people, <laughs> and is like, hey, um, we'd love not to have another riot. So how about we let this rock? Uh and and it, it look and it worked. I, I think you know it was a smart decision by everybody. Everybody won. And and the MC and the person who put everything together. Oh my goodness, his name is escaping me. That um, dude is the best. When he goes up there, don't you think? Like every time you go to a concert, like and now the organizer is going to say a few words. Aren't you like this is going to suck? This is going to grind to a screeching halt. And then that dude goes up there and is like, "Oh, you're the most charismatic person in the world." Yeah, like, and, and can convince anybody that it's worth putting this show on. Because, I mean, honestly, like, as they mentioned, like, you know, most of the promoters are going to be like, is my guy going to get paid? You know, that's going to be the number one thing. And um, what's so fascinating more than anything is you got so many people, young, young people, like Gladys Knight and Stevie Wonder at that time, who were about to take off and hadn't become the legends they become yet. And meanwhile, you got B.B. Yeah. King there. Yeah. At the same time, like a an established legend, you know, in, in black music. Killed it. Also, another thing, uh, really crazy. Uh, black fashion w- was on point, but uh yeah, I was gonna say him with them blouses. That, but also like it was I kept waiting on, on the person who would go on stage and be like, it's too fucking high for this. <laughs> but nobody did. <laughs> Everybody went a bit fresh as hell with long sleeves. <laughs> That was kind of Nina Simone when she's like kind of complaining about the heat while she's playing. Oh, yeah, yeah. She was all in one. Yeah, doing it in the hot sun. Like, it, it can't be worse than being in the crowd. Crowd's got to be hotter. I mean, well, you say that, but like, you know, you got all those eyes on you. I mean, it's got to be hot as hell. Yeah. Kind of oh, yeah, then you got lights on you. Well, that one. No well, well now the sun is, is no the light in this sun. case. Yeah, it ain't no lights. You right. Love Nina yeah. Simone. No. <laughs> I was going to say no shade, but that would be the, oh. Yeah, it means something totally different now. Mm, yeah. My favorite quote in the movie probably was Red Fox. And I cannot remember exactly how you put it, but he was basically like, you know, uh, some people trying to go to the moon, other people trying to, you know, go. It was like white people trying to go to the moon, black people trying to go to Africa. I'm going to stay my black ass here and hang out with the Puerto Ricans and have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> that was so fun to me. <laughs> God, that was the funniest shit. I was like, man. I feel like Gil Scott Heron got two songs out of this festival. Maybe he got them from somewhere else. But White is on the Moon mm-hmm. is definitely like exactly what they're talking about of when course. the moon landing happens during the festival. And then uh, the other one is Revolution Will Not Be Televised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that is, yeah. I, I mean, that would have been incredible for him to do those songs there um, if he had already had them kind of locked and ready. I don't think he'd yeah. written either one yet. No, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, because uh, that album comes out like in the 70s. Oh, I think early 70s. 70s. So like it would have been right after this. Hmm. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Feels heavy influence on on even today's pop culture, such as uh, Lovecraft Country, which unfortunately is not getting a second season. But, uh, yeah. yeah, they had Whitey's on the Moon on there, Jim. Yeah, that's literally they did Whitey's on on the Moon as a song, and then also it's a title of I think the second episode. Oh, episodes, yeah, yeah, where um he uses his ancestral power to overtake the I don't even remember the name of everybody now, but but the folks who were trying to bring back the 
thing. Man, it's been a while. Man, that show's incredible. And like, there's so much content. I, I just can't remember understand. everything, man. I still don't understand some of it sometimes. <laughs> oh, yeah. I yeah. need I need to rewatch that whole show. That that thing was fascinating. Bro. Um, but it definitely takes a lot of influence from from even this this moment in this era, which is really neat. Um I I love this era. Like I love the late 60s. I love anything 70s. I'll watch pretty much yeah. anything set between 68 and 82. But when oh, you yeah. get to it even more, and <laughs> sorry, I love New York and I love New York at that era. Um so this thing, this really worked for me. And it really worked for me because sometimes documentaries about music, you kind of just wish you could listen to music. And I find myself pausing the documentary and just listening to the music. And sometimes with like concert movies, it just doesn't feel substantial enough. It just isn't caring the way that being there would. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe because Questlove's a musician, this is the only thing I've ever seen right. accomplish both. And everybody says, stop making sense. The Talking Heads documentary is really good. Um, and I'd never seen it. And it's by Jonathan Demi, who I revere. And uh, I watched that right after watching this. And it just wasn't even close for me. Oh. You know, one thing I thought was cool, too. I mean, we've seen other docs do this, but um, having people who were present uh, kind of go back and tell a story about a concert from 50 some years ago. And they can recall you know, all this different stuff about it. But that one guy who they started with, who was a young kid when yeah. this happened, um, I was, you know, it was weird because I, you know, I wasn't alive when this happened, but, you know, I felt a little like he did because I had known this festival took place. I had never seen footage of it like that. Outside of that poem that Nina Simone had had read where I'd seen it, mm-hmm. um, uh, what, I think it was like called "What Happened in the Smoke" that Netflix documentary where they talk about their poetry read with something like burning, um, like you know, are you ready to like burn buildings? Are you ready to kill this and that? But it's like the rest of the poem has so much more to say than that. It's not. It is. It, it sounds a lot more aggressive when you just take that one part out and and say, "Look at how militant she's becoming and and she's unhinged." And it that's not even what that poem's doing. Like there, there is a lot of malice you can take if you just take that piece. But if you take it as a whole, there's a lot more present there than just like a feeling of malice. It's a, a response to, you know, you know, potential like your existential existence. It's also about hope. It's also about a lot of stuff, but it's feeling that whole thing that everybody in 1969 at that moment is feeling, you know, the there's footage where they show like the actual, police brutality taking place and it's more brutal than we see today you know in a lot of ways like cops are beating people's ass while cameras are watching them and bloodying them bludgeoning them and and knowing no one there's not going to be a trial there's no charges coming for a cop ain't nobody finna be putting footage together and being like this officer's the one who like it, it just didn't go down like that so thinking about that it's just really interesting like how the framing of history changes some of this stuff. And when you see that guy by the end, who we start the documentary with, who was a kid, remember back on everything. And he was like, I, I knew I wasn't crazy, but now I know I'm not crazy because you're showing me this. Like yeah. that happened. And the fact that we can tell this story, you know, and, and show it proves it happened. 
but there's something about it that makes me feel less insane. Like I, I know I had those feelings, but it, it wasn't in my imagination. Yeah, I like the drama throughout the whole thing of why hasn't this story ever been told before? And it isn't it isn't anything as obvious as like, well, the white people suppressed it deliberately. It's almost in a way worse because this filmmaker who had all the footage takes it to all these networks and takes it to all these like filmmakers, producers and says, can we get this put out there? I mean, Woodstock's been a big hit. And he tries to package it as, as the Blackwood stock to make it kind of more um, digestible to them. And they just tell him, no, there's just no interest in black stories. And this is what he said when he died in 2017. This is what it said in his, uh, I think he did an interview with the Smithsonian in like 2000, the mid 2000s, where he said pretty much the same thing. So he's been consistent on this throughout. Um, it was just kind of that benign neglect. Like everybody just sort of said, all the white executives just said, yeah, no thanks, nobody's interested in this. And so it just disappeared and it got forgotten. And it goes back to that whole thing of, you know, the successful people are the ones who get to write the history. And in America for the last 50, well, not just 50 years, but in America, that was white people. We're just like- Critical race theory. Woodstock matters. <laughs> Where did I see, that? it was Chuck D who said, if, <laughs> if you guys fought racism as much as you fight critical race theory, we wouldn't need critical race theory yeah <laughs> yeah i mean but that gets back to this this other thing that you know we kind of talked about very briefly at the start um you know what would a you know so like if, if you tried to do something similar to this today like you know we talk a lot about like the fact that there's been a lot of progress on all these things and yet at the same time the commodification of music has made it such that you don't see in any genre any like real kind of rebel music you know um not just within black music but but all music like it's all like packaged and sold a certain way we're talking about like mainstream stuff there are things that um you know kind of come out on the the fringes of the internet and stuff but you know we're not talking about things that are meant to um really in any way move people politically any direction or, you know anything like that the closest i can even think of that's come out recently is some of the stuff we've seen from beyonce and jay-z which is kind of weird where you know when beyonce did um the lion king well not the right. is it right. yeah when she did the lion king soundtrack there's like a lot of things in it. they're so pro-black and so in your face about like just pan-Africanism and this connection that people have like this literally it's on the beginning it's like talking about like find your way back like find your way back to the motherland like that kind of stuff and it's very much about like you know you know being confident in who you are and believing in your self-worth and all that kind of stuff there's not a whole lot of that in modern music today um and Keith, you know, like to your point, what would it look like today if we tried to put together some artists? I, I don't even know that that's something that the, the tenor of it would be so different because you can't really mix, I don't think, old and new artists the same way. They just function on, on levels that are so different. And there's like this social media aspect. There's all these things I feel like conflict in ways that may not make it something that's possible today. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. 
I mean, you it would it would be a very small group of artists if it's if it's supposed to be something that raises like any type of consciousness outside of like sexuality, you know. Because like even with like hip hop now, there's this whole thing with like, you know, artists or what they talk about like female artists, I guess um what's what's the word that what's the phrase they use? Um regaining their sexuality. Some shit like that. Mm-hmm, so they make mm-hmm. songs like um, so you're talking about like people like Megan the Stallion. Yeah, like Megan the Stallion making thought thought shit. Now then um, to be clear, wow. it's not like she only makes that kind of music. I do want to be fair to her. Because even like the performance she did at the BT Awards last year, uh that came after the alleged shooting from uh uh whoever the well, what I'm saying it's it's the music that she's known for. Sure, and, yeah. and that's that's what that's what people are gonna normally connect her to, mm-hmm. and then every other artist, you know, male artists, they just talking about you know making money and popping you know, pills and you know have you know smashing bras and stuff like that. That's that's what they talking about. So it's like, who I mean, who would you have really besides like older cats that we? But even know, older cats, I don't even know if we're talking about hip. Like it's weird. Like all the genres when you mix them up, like there's not a lot of. And R&B is just completely out there. I mean, you got you got some yeah. good R&B artists. Like, I think her is good. I think Ari Lennox is, is good. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. and, and even, like, I still think Jasmine Sullivan got it. But, man, nah. It's not, it's not, it's not like, it's not like even what it was like in the 90s, I think, you know? Yeah, and the lack of musicality. Well, I don't know. I feel like a thing happened where... Yeah. Everybody became a little bit political, but nobody's explicitly political. So you used to have like public enemy that was just like, we are political. We don't mess with anything else. And And then you had NWA. Yeah. And everybody, I mean, NWA mixed it up a little bit more. Right. Right. But like, I mean, I used to be like, I I love Ice-T. I know that like now Ice-T is the guy on Law and Order, but when I was a kid, like Ice T was like so dangerous and scary, like because it was like cop killer and it was the yeah, most like cop killer. He's not going to be the destruction of our civilization. <laughs> you know, blood will run in the streets because of Ice T, and everything turned out fine. So, so for the people who don't remember, because because <laughs> you grew up in that era, can you? Because and I know some of it, but I think you could describe it better than I could. Can you tell people the the mania behind cop killer at the time? All right, first, there's fuck the police. So people freaked out about NWA and NWA wasn't allowed to play some shows and cops would turn their backs and stuff like that. And the FBI was investigating. The, the FBI like sent them a letter. Um, and it, there was like a real thing of like, you know, gangster rap is going to crumble our society. And, and also remember before this too, the context being that you had people like, um, oh God, who, who did they? Okay, this is literally, like, they had to defend the First Amendment for them. That's, Damn. That's two Live Crew. Yeah. Thank you, Two Live Crew. Yeah, they said their, their lyrics were too crude and this and that. So they won that suit and they were able to continue talking about sex and things like that, however they wanted. So like there's, there's these other things, like even had legal challenges up before the police. A, I, I can remember going on like Saturday morning to buy Two Live Crew's pretty stupid song band in the usa like as a single like yeah. to support two live crew because <laughs> did they already have the parental advisory stickers oh on yeah there? yeah yeah there was yeah. a thing about whether they would be allowed to release their record like and like two live crew is just like dumb fun super misog- like uh, misogynistic i don't know if they oh, like 100- no, it's 100 like, misogynistic sexy, you gotta super sexist super dirty 
super fucking great music. Um, <laughs> yeah, <dude. laughs> So there's like this thing of like, are they going to be banned? And then around the same era, you have NWA, and around the same era, you have, um, you have Ice T comes out with Cop Killer because Ice T decides he's going to come out with like a a metal band, Body Count, and mm-hmm. Cop Killer is like, I got my headlights off, I got my sawed off. Um, I, I know all the words, but I can't do it right now. Uh, <laughs> and it's just like for every crooked cop, for every cop who, you know, um, who harassed me, I'm going to kill cops, basically. And it's a total artistic statement. And he says so at the time. He says, like, how come Johnny Cash is allowed to say I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die? And you accept that as just artistry. But when I say it, everybody assumes that I'm literally saying kill cops. Um, so Charlton Heston. Mm-hmm. Uh, reads the lyrics to Cop Killer at a Warner Brothers shareholders meeting. All of this just real over the top stuff. And finally, Ice T voluntarily takes, I, I think, kind of at the urging of Warner Brothers, takes Cop Killer off the album. Yeah, and, because they were starting to get like uh, like police unions, like sending letters and shit to them. There yeah. was so much. It was like the Bush Quail team were exploiting yeah. this to make it like. You know, Ice-T thinks it's okay to say you can kill cops. And I went to, it, it caught on enough. Ice-T was at uh, Lollapalooza, the first Lollapalooza at 91. And in 92, he wasn't there, but Soundgarden was there. And Chris Cornell is like, uh, to support Ice-T, we're going to make sure that we sing this song at every Lollapalooza from now on. So like- I don't even remember that. 15, 20,000 of us, mostly white kids- are singing along with Cop Killer to support Ice T, uh, with <laughs> Cornell leading it, and like nobody said shit. Nobody cares. Doesn't matter. Totally forgotten. Of course, they didn't keep performing Cop Killer at every Lollapalooza. <laughs> Just totally and utterly forgotten because people recognize like this is a symbolic statement and it doesn't mean anything. And that just brings me back to Nina Simone saying. You know, are you ready to kill? I don't think Nina Simone is literally saying go out and kill. Look, Eminem been talking about killing Kim for like 20 years and she's still <laughs> and his mama. Like, and I'm talking and his mama, and it be graphic. <laughs> and he talk about what he gonna do, how he gonna get away with it. And I'm like, that man I never thought song. he was gonna actually kill her. That man <laughs> like, made a song, bitch. I'm gonna kill you. You don't want yeah. with me. <laughs> That's a good song. But it's trust, trust me, you ain't done. Oh yeah, it was I, I remember that man. He said, <laughs> "I ain't done. This ain't the chorus. I ain't even took you in the woods yet to paint the forest." I'll never oh, forget man. that lyric because when I was, I think I was like 12 or 11, when it came out. I said, "Man, this dude crazy." When he did, does anyone remember Chandra Levy? No, uh. Uh-uh. She's this intern who disappeared. It was right before 9-11. And she was like the big story okay. of what happened to Chandra Levy. And she was just this poor missing woman who nobody could find. And he threw it in the middle of business, this line like, Jesus, how can shit be so easy? How can one Chandra be so leavy? That's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He did, <laughs> <laughs> Why would you do that? Because he Eminem. Eminem was a fool back in the day. Oh, he, he was stupid. He definitely got away with a lot of stuff. I was, I was watching, I was reading the article about um, what's the the singer on um, Billie Eilish was talking about how she was terrified of Eminem as a child. That's <laughs> I guess if I was younger, I probably would be too. But I was a, I was a whole teenager and I was feeling that shit. Man, um, that dude, he and then he did stuff with like um, uh, D twelve. 
you know, his group yeah. out of Detroit and yeah. stuff. Like, so it was funny because, I mean, it's not like, the thing with him was he started freaking people out because he started talking about, you know, raping, you know, white female celebrities and stuff and all that. And, you know, yeah, it, was, it was pretty, it was bad. White dude. <laughs> yeah. So like, no black man could ever say that stuff. They yeah. put his ass in jail for saying that. Right. Um, but in, it just, but in general, like the way music changed in the different genres of black people use, like it's, um, it's weird because now there's so much money involved. It's the same reason, like, you don't see athletes out here. Like, you ain't gonna see no Jim Brown and no Muhammad Ali out here doing the stuff they do because when you can make the money Floyd Mayweather's making, you know, you can sign, you know, an NBA 200 something million dollar deals and you ain't barely did shit. You've been in the league for like three, four years. You ain't, you ain't got a whole lot to say about what's going on with Black Lives Matter or nothing like that. It's just too risky. Well, NBA, the NBA, is i mean every sports league now is i mean that, that's look, every sports every sports league and every like major really every major cultural figure is like a little bit politically plugged in now but but hold on wait a minute let's be fair about a moment though all right so when trump was in office everything was stick to sports mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. and george floyd happened and everybody heard this man crying for his mother while he died on video for that long. And then yeah. a lot of people let up and then you, you could say what you wanted. They they spraying Black Lives Matter and stuff like this on the field, on the courts and all this. And then this yeah. year, kind of right back I to think, the same I thing. think it's all about like what's trendy and shit. That's why I be thinking that everything be bullshit. Yeah. Because, because if that's the case, then all of these actors, all of these... um celebrities if they would have been spoken up like a long time ago they would have been made changes because look think that's part of what made race theory right now well yeah but but that's part of what made i think made the changes in and everybody talking about black lives matter all this stuff is because of celebrities well i i think what happened i think that george floyd video really was super traumatic for people but what we are saying to your point, Keith, is now. Yeah, but but you mean to tell me so? Philando Castillo gets shot in front of his child's mother and his child, and we listen to him breathe his last breath. Mm-hmm. And the child crying in the back of the police car and all that. Look, I'm gonna tell you what it is. I'm gonna tell you exactly what it is. Okay. I'm, I'm gonna use this for an example. When I was in college, I had a beard. Every woman I met said, "Cut that shit off." You look, you know what I'm saying? You look like an old man. They say all this type of shit. Then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, I don't know what happened. Every woman likes beards. Even the women back in the day that didn't like them. What the, what the fuck happened? That's the same thing with the Black Lives Matter. Black people been getting killed forever. That was never, there, there has not been, the only thing changed is, is, of course, technology. But even then, we still seeing people getting slayed in the street. But see, I think, you know what the difference was? I think, though, like, I mean, like, if we're going to go deep into this, pretty much, Philando Castile, I, look, I don't agree. I, we 100% all this stuff was stupid. He told dude he had a gun. He started freaking out, whatever. So you can make the case, even though it make no sense, that the dude feared for his life, say he had a gun. George Floyd, he's surrounded by like three other cops who were like blocking, and those guys are up for um, their trial soon. Um, you got Derek Chauvin on his on his neck, and and everybody knows when you on somebody's neck, you cannot breathe. And he did this for a long time. He did it in front of kids. 
He did it in front of other people who were public servants as well, who told him this was unsafe. He did despite this man pleading for that long for his life. And a lot of people watched that video. And I saw a lot of people I knew who were white go from playing some both sides shit to being like, okay, that one's like, you can't really get into it. And the best defense they had during the trial was maybe he breathed in the exhaust from a car that wasn't on. Mm. And that causes Man. lungs to do whatever. And then he was taking some some quaaludes or something. No, and, I, you know, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't believe it. No, no, I, I don't believe think, none I of think that. What, I think all the only thing that happened was, I don't know who started it. Some some Somebody famous or a group of famous people decided that this shit was not right. And everybody else got on board and said that it's not right. But because I think too I many, think, it's too many instances that's similar to George Floyd. That has they're happened. not that similar. I mean, or, or like, or like where somebody just like this dude here, woman walking to his apartment, he eating ice cream on the couch and he gets shot. Brianna, yeah. um, Brianna Taylor gets shot sleeping. So you know people, people, so, I think. Look, it's I think you and I agree that these things are that straightforward i think a lot of people believe a woman a police officer walking into an apartment and, and reacting i don't know why they see that it's so different but they do i don't know why they think the brianna taylor thing is is different even though they had bad information on their warrant and all that but i do think something with this did resonate a little differently yeah and look you could say it's trendy whatever the reason is is kind of inconsequential right. to the fact that that's not actually the, the empathy for black life subsided very, fairly quickly. And, and the fact of the matter is the that point I'm making is that there is no empathy. They still don't give a fuck. Well, so, but if here's the thing. It was true in 1969. If something is trendy, you still don't give a fuck about it. You well, know if, it, if it was true in 1969, it's true today. And I think the thing that this documentary, I think does a pretty decent job at doing is showing the, the, unfortunate amount of similarity between then and now as far as how the powers that be react to this stuff i think the thing that's a little bit different is people do have more people in the corporations who are black who have i won't say just a massive amount of influence but like they listen to these people and at least temporarily in moments like this, like they'll hear them out a little more. It doesn't last very long. We saw a lot of people get opportunities that they didn't normally get and opportunities to kind of expand their platforms and do a little more. And they still have those. And, and um, you know, look, they, they happen because of the George Floyd situation. It is what it is. And we saw that across media all over the place. Do you, I don't know. It just bothers me because what happens when it's no longer trendy? Right. Would you agree? I would say trendy. I, I would say it's trendy for white people. Do you think black people have been pretty consistent with this? I mean, but black people, black people been used to it. Right. It's kind of like it's kind of right. like if you in a abusive relationship your whole life, that's just all you know. But it isn't like it isn't like black people went through ebbs and flows of like, oh, this isn't that bad. Like, you know, it, it isn't like black people like took their eye off the ball for decades. It's like it's like white people sometimes put this as a priority and sometimes didn't. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. But, I, but I also think like a lot of times in black culture, we we are so embedded with struggle. Like and there's other cultures that's like that, too. So you 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 come from a culture of people that's always living in the struggle. You don't. I mean, certain stuff don't bother you the same type of way. Now, some stuff do. It, you know, it adds up and it starts to piss you off like on a whole nother level. 
yeah. but we always been experiencing these things. You know? Yeah, and so that's like, that's one thing that just stuck out to me too. It's like when you think about so since '69, so we're talking about an era at that moment where you're just now kind of like my parents, for example, uh, and the, like they were the first generation that started getting college degrees, and that was true for a lot of people at that time. But they, those people, my parents were being like had just been born around '69, like they were very young, they were kids, kids, they were not teenagers, so. You know, they have older siblings who, you know, had started going to school and things like that. But that era has, for Black people, the first generation of people who are more consistently getting degrees. And for us now, we're we're like oftentimes that second generation. Some For some people, third generation within their families, but a lot of people, second generation. And I think that also comes with some different uh, consequences, too, potentially for considering um political activism and just how you respond to these things because there's a way in which keith to your point you know we're talking about like coping mechanisms also there's this whole thing of like you know how much are you willing to sacrifice for the revolution there are people in this um in this documentary who talk about having entered college and then left college to begin organizations for the betterment of, of the liberation of black people. We don't see a whole lot of that today. Uh-huh. And I'm not saying that with any criticism, I ain't do it, but I'm saying that, you know, they're different. They're di- just, they're different circumstances happening at the moment that make the way these changes happen a little different. A lot of it's still on the ground. There's a lot of organizations still and social media helps a lot of that, but yeah. a lot of people are trying to make moves in the boardrooms now. That's that's the point I was gonna try to get to about what's changed, what was different with George Floyd. It's, I think it's white accountability because in 1969, you could, as a white person, pretty much ignore whatever you wanted to. I think uh, if you lived, unless you lived in a city that was in the midst of rioting, there were no repercussions for your benign neglect, none. But if you're in 2020 and COVID-19 has shut down pretty much everything else, all the other distractions, and then this George Floyd case happens where the entire thing is caught on film in front of many, many witnesses, and it's an unbroken shot of atrocity that's indefensible on any level, and you also have social media pressure, and you have people taking to the streets in peaceful demonstrations, it's kind of unavoidable. So if you have a company, mm. if, if you are a CEO, you kind of have to say something at this point. You can't just like ignore it and go, oh, well, you know, that's that's what they're complaining about in Harlem. It's everywhere. Like you got yeah, You don't have to pull them Ben and Jerry's and do like, like the wokest statement well, you've ever seen. Part of it is that like one reason that like, I'm in a pretty white area right now outside Boston where there are Black Lives Matter signs everywhere and what that is from i think is that a lot of people haven't ever had to engage in any way and now they're doing it in like sometimes a ben and jerry way it's like it's well-meaning for sure it's well-meaning it's well-intentioned but sometimes you're just like you're just like are you doing this like to show your white neighbors that you're cool 
But actually, I think you brought up something that I think it's come to mind before, but I always forget about the George Floyd moment. And I think, Keith, that might be what's unique about what happened is, you know, like, we're able to move, about, like, it's almost, well, it's past a year since that happened at this point. And a year ago, shit, we were scared to go outside. Yeah. There was no vaccine. Yeah. You didn't trust that other people were doing much of nothing. So, like, you really, you were just inside the house. And when a moment like that happens, it was pretty much all that you saw. Like, if you went online, if you turned on your TV, one way or another, you couldn't help but, like, hear about the George Floyd situation. So I think that is what make is a special circumstance that maybe also kind of put some additional attention on it that maybe we'll never even have again a global pan a global pandemic can definitely happen again but i just think like the way this happened in the freshness of it and the way it took place like the, the the circumstances about it being the first time make it particularly unique and i think if something like that happened again we're not gonna see the same sort of reaction and fervor behind it uh but i think that was a, a specific moment that you know for our generation in our lifetime won't be replicated. I just I just hated that it took this much to raise people consciousness. I remember um I, I don't know. I just I just kind of give up on people when it comes to stuff like that, honestly. Yeah, because our humanity is not up for debate. Yeah, it's just all. I I don't I, I just I have no I guess faith in in humans sometimes. <laughs> so I don't know I don't believe like it's it's I'm a I, I don't believe it's all like empathy. I'm I'm sure there are those who feel a certain way, but I feel like if you didn't feel this way a few years ago, I, I'm I'm just very skeptical about a person that all of a sudden has just changed. Well, I, I've been around enough people who aren't black to understand that when you're not around other sorts of people, like there's a lot of stuff that can just go missing. Cause you just, I mean, it's not even something that's ever on your mind. It doesn't even, you can't recognize things that you haven't been, you know, um, that they haven't been brought to your attention. It's difficult to recognize, you know, a wrong if like people constantly doing a behavior in front of you and it's just never been explained to you that that is not how you behave, or that's not a right way to look at things or whatever. Like it, 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 it seems pretty like, hey, like obviously that should be off or whatever. But like, you know, I, I've had that happen with you know myself and having to rethink and, and re-understand some things about things when it comes to um, you know gender politics and things like that. Not that I never noticed any of it specifically, but like until someone's brought to my attention, some of it I just didn't recognize or notice. You know what I mean? So I it's more like to, that kind I of thing to an extent. But I just can't. I just can't sit here and believe. Maybe I'm saying this because I'm black. That, but that anyone that's born that grew up in the United States don't know anything about the plight of plight of black people. It's not a thing of not knowing about it. It's a thing of being able to recognize the wrong that's taking place. The crazy it's, shit. Like I don't know. Like I'm not first. I feel. I don't. I don't want to like. I know I sounded like I'm like criticizing like white people who have caught on because you could argue that i'm a white person who's caught on i think anybody who catches on it's a good thing and they any effort they're making is positive and i appreciate that yeah and also i think i'm flawed everyone is flawed everyone has blind spots and has made mistakes 
and has to learn more and be better at empathy and learning history. But I think I think you are seeing like a sloppy rollout by people who, for some of them, I think some of it is kind of new. Like there's one of the cities that's done arguably the worst job of helping Black Lives Matter is Portland, Oregon, where you have true, true, you have like white people who are like burning buildings, and then Fox News holds that up as an example of Black Lives Matter, and Portland is one of the whitest cities. It is the whitest major city in America. So they're doing their best. <laughs> they mean well. They're doing what they think. They're, the they're creating problems for everybody. <laughs> I know. And I know lots of like cool, good liberal people in Portland who are not doing this. But there are a number of people in Portland who have, are, are doing what they think is the right thing. And it's not helpful to anybody. It's like, dog, it's too hot in these streets. That's not going to become your problem. It's going to become my problem. Chill. I don't know, so, man. Maybe, maybe, maybe my mindset of it is, is that there's also like this thing of like being showy about something. Yeah. Like if you if you really want to help, then help. You know what I'm saying? But, see, educate yourself. You- but that doesn't that you don't have to tell the world this. Yeah. And, that. and especially if you don't if you're not even educating yourself first. And but see, but I, okay, that, that that's exactly what I was about to mention. So it, it there's this thing too, where like there was a lot of black people going out and saying, you can Google history, you can do this and you can do that. I'm like, dog, that's how we got to this problem in the first place in some cases. Can't be just telling people to Google shit. If somebody asking you a question and they're a white colleague or whatever, I know it's annoying, but it might be better to hear something, some kind of framing from you then from Google, who might take them down some roads that take that tell totally different false tales, or like I, I mean, I've seen there was I really wish I could remember what circumstances it was, but there was like a black person talking to a white person about something, and they were like real off, like it was a really bad perspective. It was not the right way to like explain this stuff. But the white people, they're like, look, I really want to listen to a black person. I don't want to be shutting them down. That sounds wrong, but I want to respect what they're saying. I really want to keep that in mind. Because they're black, they're speaking from their experience, and I don't want to be shutting that shit down. But and when you're listening like to it, yeah, it's like you, you shouldn't be. You mean well, you want to learn, but this person's talking some bullshit, and you're like, all right, I guess that's right. And then they start keeping that frame in mind, but it's actually like really, really, you know, it's just not the right way to to, to approach it, you know. And um, I mean, if if this is the thing, if you all about that, you'll do you'll do your dip dot your deep dives and your research that's all i'm saying deep dives and research is how how we got some of this misinformation today so i mean talking about no bullshit google search like like if you put it like this if you know what you know somebody else could know what you know you you type the wrong term in you'll you'll go through all the internet will take you to the wrong spot i'm not talking about that i'm saying there, there there's these things called books they still are very effective that also have but false this, information. But this, in the point, them this the point is, how do you know what you know? So look, just like look, our textbooks listen, right listen now. Look, look, Keith, Keith, you... Keith, Keith, our textbooks today do not always teach basic, basic stuff about, about history. Textbooks. I'm talking about how do Aaron knows what Aaron knows? Aaron has read a bunch of stuff from different exactly. places. All exactly. Of, but but but, but that's but, but the, point, the point I'm making is that like it's either it's either you all about that or you not. Like I don't even. They, they like, not, like, I'm not finna. I'm not. I'm not gonna be out here in this world trying to act like I'm about something just because it's trendy. 
That's why I'm saying that these people are doing. But this, it, these it, are it, our lives. We care about these things in very different ways. They they impact us every day. I got kids. You may have kids down the road. You just we got to know stuff that they don't. We got to immerse ourselves and be able to assimilate to white culture. And they never had to assimilate to black shit. That's why they don't have to know that. It's not super important to have to know these things. That's the so, thing you can get by as a white person never having to think about this until very recently, arguably. And really, if you want, you still don't have to know it. You, you only have is, to. You, you, you would know it if you maybe have or, or choose to know you have people in your life that talk about that. Like I, I had white people in my life who I'm close to who before a lot of this stuff was taking place, they wouldn't even, even probably thought to ask me about certain stuff, you know? And I mean, why would they? It's like it could come up, but like why we need to be having conversation back and forth about you know, all the different things going on today and the history of how things happened and the, you know, what really happened with slavery and da, da, da. I mean, like, I mean, it's just not what you're talking about all the time. You're just, you're just making a decision about whether you want to know history and what actually happened or not. And if you choose not to know what actually happened and what our country has actually done and what has actually happened, then it's really easy for you to go like, what? Everybody's equal. Why are they fucking complaining all the time? Like, it's real easy. But if you, like, know anything, and including slavery, Jim Crow, housing... Iran-Contra, which a lot of people still don't like talking about. It just happened. Yeah. Any number of things that are redlining, any number of things that happen, like, within the last two generations, not even including things in the current generation... You just ha- you have the perspective that you have. You, it's hard not to have the perspective that these are problems if you understand anything about them. And there's a risk of like sounding too strident and alienating people. But I would just, there's nobody listening to this right now who's this deep into this podcast who's like, I don't think racism is a problem. But, <laughs> but like- Man, I got, what were you gonna say? I'm sorry. <laughs> but I mean, if, if you can find that magical unicorn person who's actually uninformed about this and willing to learn, it's like you said, they have to go read books. They have to like go search out the right books. They have to. And, the, and, the, and be, to be clear, there's some bad books that were bestsellers sure. about how to think about race and this and that. And I was like, that is not the right framing, but, but honestly, people are trying. People are trying. It's like newspapers. You got to read so many of them that you assemble the truth for yourself. Like you take a little bit of this, you take a little bit of that, you go, this contradicts this, this contradicts this, this seems consistent throughout all the books. This definitely happened. That is so much work. And that's the thing. That's why I'm not criticizing people for, because it is hard to get this. If if you're starting, I'm not even talking about starting from zero, because this is some complex shit. And you got to challenge a lot of the things you found to be true previously about institutions and just in general Oftentimes, your colleagues who are not attempting to do this sort of resurgence of of like in, in reclaiming and, and re, rethinking of what what's factual, even. <laughs> but there's yeah. also there's a thing nobody does where nobody goes. You know what? I don't know anything about this. I'm gonna sit this one out. Yeah, no, nobody ever says that. <laughs> they should. Gamers do it plenty though, actually. Like, like, like I got that. a friend, I got a white friend right now. He doesn't believe in like st- st- systemic racism. So 
he and he just, but then I, you know, I talked to him about it. I ain't gonna have no fool because, like, like I said, I'm I'm not in this world to try to convince white people anything else <laughs> outside of what you already believe. But he's he grew up in a town in Texas that is majority white, and all of my descendants from Germany. So it's like his his view is very you know in this box, and that's just and he never really you know he lived in Japan for a while. But he mostly been in Texas, so he don't. That's a weird man. There's no history of any weird discrimination in Germany. He's actually very or in Japan. <laughs> Not yeah, at he all. Lived, he lived in Japan for about almost. I think it was almost almost two years or something. Like he speaks Japanese and all this stuff. But anyway, I don't really have an issue with him because he never tried to be something outside of what he is and try to understand something that he does not completely understand. But now, is he open to have a conversation? Yeah, he open, you know? I don't think he gonna just go through and start studying race theory out of nowhere or nothing like that. You know, he I just-, just But that's, I mean, we talk about reading books and this. I just don't even think it take all that. I mean, I think sometimes you ain't, that that's information you can get over your lifetime. Right. It's like this basic idea that like, hey, you know, maybe let's just treat folks equal under the under the law. That's the but, if you, but if you already doing. think that they're equal, then that's the problem there, right? Well, I'm, what I'm saying is there's a there's a basic baseline of you know the law and what the law says and how how it should be enacted, and so there's a difference between law and practice and in, in, in law and action. There's law de jure and law something else. I can't remember all these terms right now, but basically, but the practicality I, of what happens and then what's on paper is like totally different. Yeah, I mean, but but I mean, and, and everybody got their own biases and the way they look at stuff. Just like I know that there is a um, an issue with like you know like with how how met both men and women are treated within within society and stuff. Right, men get paid more and so on and so forth. Right. But in my mind, I feel like if I was a woman, I'd be a millionaire by now. You know, because I'm thinking like there are certain advantages to being a woman that women okay. are privy to, you know? But that's just, that's also me thinking from my, you know. Male brain. My male brain. That's the same guy. way, I'm sure there's there's some, there's a, there's a, a white dude in uh, Itabena, Mississippi somewhere that's thinking <laughs> that black people got it better. <laughs> or bush. I don't know shit. <laughs> that's a, it's a bunch of white dudes white sitting around people. mad about what they deserve and feel like they should get. And right, right. He's all this madness. Well, look, we have been talked about for probably like a half hour stuff that ain't related to the movie. It's related to the movie, but, you know, not exactly. Um, but I think this is a good stopping point. I feel like we've covered a lot of bases and on, um, you know, just the that moment in time where we are in a contemporary place and just... It's just a lot of a lot of it's just odd how many of these things thematically are still present in our country and hopefully we'll begin to move past it. But it, it won't happen through the music. I think that's one thing that, that we have kind of sending around is that's really this funny. can't be replicated again. I think yeah. it totally will happen through the music. That's funny. I think about like people I know who credit public enemy and KRS one like white like white suburban kids who say that they think about all of this stuff because of KRS one and public enemy 
I'm sorry, to be clear, it, it won't happen because of the new artists or the new music coming out. Yeah. Come on, Janelle Monet. Well, she she's like Afrofuturistic and all kind of other stuff now. Like she kind of on a whole another wave, and like her stuff isn't explicitly political. But no, nah, she's amazing. She's amazing. I'm just, not downplaying Janelle Monet. She has good music. And and like I think that's the thing. Most people don't have at least have good soul music, like even like Anderson Pack, but it's not no, you know, it's nothing politically driven. Which I don't know. well, I mean, but he made a political song after the George Floyd stuff too. Oh, he did. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, just for the record, when I said that I make money as a woman, it's not gonna be because I'm selling my body. <laughs> okay, sure. No, I'm, I'm, just really <laughs> I'm glad you clarified that because that's definitely what everyone went to immediately. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't want people. <laughs> Keith would 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 dress scantily and then also keep the voice he got now and you know get all the jobs. And just to clarify, I applaud Ben and Jerry's and every other company that came out with an awkward statement in support of Black Lives Matter. Hey, no, 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 no. Like, look, you said awkward <laughs> statement. Ben and Jerry's, they they, they wrote a, a, a corporate dissertation on the history of white supremacy. And how they, they are not for that shit. I was all about what Ben and Jerry's was only awkward because it was Ben and Jerry's. Agreed. It was only because yeah. was like, what? Ben and, it was like, a where is, what's the Joseph Health thing about? Like, where is Ja? <laughs> like, after 9-11, like, what does your rule think? Man, yeah, well... I don't know, man. Like Ben and Jerry's came with it. Like there, there was no, no, like oh well, they're 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 like riding the fence. So like I don't know what Ben and Jerry's is thinking about this situation. Now they made it queer. So and, um, I, and I don't applaud every uh, organization that didn't do as good a statement as Ben and Jerry's. Yeah, NASCAR. I live and learn. They had that new situation. That's that, there's a whole lot of oh, stuff that was there. Pretty but. rough. But then, then they were like, it wasn't a noose. I don't know, whatever. It it doesn't matter. There's so many weird things that happened right after that with a bunch of corporations, including sports organizations. I mean, they all should be a, a little, a little weirded out about how that happened. Because remember, the NBA almost didn't even play their playoffs. The players were going to boycott. There's a lot. There's so much that happened that I thought was really significant. But at the end of the day, I mean, a dollar rule at all. They weren't going to not play games. This is what it is. That's just if they didn't, that would be a massive statement. But since they didn't do that after Donald Sterling got called saying what he was saying, I didn't expect nothing. I'm not saying that with any criticism. There's just, you know, the pressures they have are just very, very different. And you're not talking about one individual making a decision. You're talking about making a decision for hundreds of different employees who make millions of dollars and then say, we're not going to make these millions of dollars and we're not going to get paid for like half a year. And then we might lose sponsors. That's not happening. It's too much. So I'm not, I'm not hating on athletes. I'm just saying, you know, I just, I don't, that's not the expectation I have. Movie pitch. Um, they, all the black uh, NBA players refuse to play and they have to send in the white players. Uh, so it's just like Rob Schneider and uh, uh, Adam Sandler. Um and he's a hooper now, Adam Sandler. Don't don't get it twisted. He, he he'll do that role. Uh, Chris Will Carlton, Ferrell. Kevin James. What do you think? Yeah, that's that sounds good. <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't, I think I need some Hispanics here. <laughs> Love it, Carlos Mencia, <laughs> Jeremy Lin. <laughs> they hey, by the way, the way the NBA did Jeremy Lin was wrong. 
you know, like the fact that he's Asian was hooping, and then they were just like, you can't be in the league. That was wrong. Just thought I'd throw that out there. See, I don't, I, we don't know nothing about what you're talking about. Just it out. See, <laughs> so somebody listening knows. Somebody listening knows. I don't know what you're talking about. They're Asian hoopers out there, and and you know they not getting love. That's all. But uh, hey, if you made it this far, you we got real deep. <laughs> we talking about this time, so um, yeah, I mean, it, it generates a lot of conversation, and, and we don't we don't always dive deep into to civil and political stuff, but um, you know, it's often an opportunity, so we took advantage of it. But if you enjoyed the conversation, definitely, definitely recommend this podcast. It means you were into it. Uh, recommend it to a friend. Those a review. Um, as well as subscribe. Make sure you're available for the next one. We come on every Thursday. Uh, Keith, tell people where they can find us on the social. You guys can follow us on Facebook and also on the Instagram at the Low Key Pod. Awesome sauce. And um, Tim, as uh, mentioned before, has a story coming up on Jimi Hendrix and why he did not play in the Harlem Cultural Festival. What else can we look forward to this week outside of the industry podcast, which you know, there was a um, a tweet that was put out about what this one's about. It sounded really bonkers, including stuff from the Kremlin. Oh, my God. Dan yeah. Delgado, who is one of my favorite podcasters ever, yeah, yeah. has this podcast called The Industry, where he talks about the weirdest Hollywood stories. And this one I'd never heard of. Jane Fonda, Elizabeth Taylor, Cicely Tyson, and a couple of other huge actors. Also, Patsy Kensett, who you may remember from Lethal Weapon 2. Uh, went over to the uh, went over to the Soviet Union in an act of cinematic detente to try to make a joint U.S. USSR production um, to sort of broker peace, thaw the Cold War, whatever. Um, kind of a disaster. Liz Taylor gets dysentery. Uh, Jane Fonda realizes that Soviet crews knock off at five o'clock no matter what. One of the child actors is afraid that they're all going to starve because the Soviet restaurant is so bad. It's just a bizarre, ridiculous story. I don't even know where Dan found it, but he keeps coming up with this stuff, and I love the dude. I'm going to send Dan a, a pitch, by the way. You should. Because I have a couple ideas. Because, I mean, he's such a wizard at research and then getting people to talk on the record about the situations yeah. that took place. I wonder if he we can get him to talk about um, – or he can get people, I should say. He can get people to talk about. And I cannot remember even what it was exactly. And, Keith, this might come to you. Remember, what was that movie that took place where, like, there was a helicopter accident oh, that Twi- happened? Which one? Twilight Zone. Yeah, Twilight Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Ooh, that'd be a good one. I wonder if he can get people on the record on that. Oh, that'd be tough. But It'd uh, be real tough. Yeah, we should tell him. Yeah, he probably won't. It'll probably take him like two years to get everybody he wants. <laughs> but, a four part episode, though. That's a great one. Yeah, yeah. Hey, it's nobody can have this, by the way. This is this is Dan Delgado's. We claim this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Act like you didn't hear this. Just know it's, it, it, you know, potentially, you know, coming up in, the, in a future episode. <laughs> oh, man. Um, all right, cool. Well, hey, we appreciate y'all being here. We'll catch y'all in the next one. And, uh, Again, it will be awesome next time. Can't can't wait to see y'all on the uh, following week. Mm-hmm.